Welcome to the Hand Tools and Techniques Woodworking Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Rosieski, answering your questions and bringing you tips and tricks to help you get the most out of your time in the shop. Are you having tear-out problems when you're using your smoothing plane? Have you ever wondered what a haunch is? Are you curious about the usefulness of scratch stocks? I'll discuss these topics and more today on Hand Tools and Techniques. Hey everyone, welcome back to Hand Tools and Techniques. Thanks for joining me for episode 30 of the show for July 13th, 2018. Before I start today's show, I just want to take a minute to thank our new patrons. Thanks to John Baird and Jason's Vocal for signing up to support the show. And thanks to all of our patrons for your continued support of the show. Your continued support is what helps to keep things going here. And if you'd like to support the show yourself, head on over to patreon.com slash brfinewoodworking. And if you pledge $3 a month or more, you'll get access to a once a month patron only episode of the podcast is my special way of saying thanks. And uh, sometimes that's a, an audio episode, sometimes it's a video episode, so kind of never know what you're going to get there, but uh, it's just a, a little something extra for my $3 and over patrons just to, to help say thanks for uh, helping to support the show. So I've been away for uh, almost a week, so I don't really have a, a whole lot of updates going on around the, house, or the shop or the cabin, so instead we'll get right into our listener questions. Our first question comes from Hugo Bellargen. And Hugo wants to know, why are the cap irons on the Miller's Falls planes in two sections? So having never used the Miller's Falls planes myself, I can't comment specifically on the Miller's Falls cap iron, but I have used a a Clifton cap iron, which was a replica of the old record stay set cap iron, and it was also a two-piece cap iron. And the idea behind the two-piece cap iron was that the front of the cap iron or, or chip breaker, the, the names are pretty much interchangeable, um, the, the front of the chip breaker was a second loose section. So what you would do is you would put the chip breaker on the blade and you would set it where you wanted it, put it in a plane, use the plane until it got dull. When it got dull and it was time to sharpen the blade again, you would remove the blade set from the plane and you could take just the front section of the chip breaker off and then um, sharpen the iron and you were able to chase the burr on the back of the iron without actually removing the the main chip breaker, main section of the chip breaker and the chip breaker screw. So in, in essence, they stayed set in, in their position. You wouldn't have to reset them. Um, and then you would just snap the front part of the chip breaker back on uh, when you were done sharpening and you could put the plane right back uh, sorry, put the blade set right back in the plane and you wouldn't have to f- uh, fiddle with resetting the chip breaker. Uh, so that was the, uh, that's the two piece chip breaker that I've used before. Uh, I'm assuming the Miller's Falls one is probably uh, a similar design to that. That's the only one that I've ever used. So our next question comes from Dom Dudkowitz and Dom wants to know, what are your opinions and experience on smoothing plane setup? When it comes to the interaction of the chip breaker, frog pitch, and mouth opening, particularly in the context of working a combination of difficult hardwoods and also tamer North American varieties. Obviously, all else being equal, a higher frog pitch should reduce tear out at the expense of some clarity, edge life, and effort to push. 
A tighter mouth will obviously reduce tear out. A closer set chip breaker with a higher, uh, greater than 45 degree angle and high polish on the leading edge will also act to reduce tear out, but could clog the plane uh, if coupled with a tight mouth. I found that a close set chip breaker and open mouth does seem to reduce tear out significantly over a closed mouth with a 50 degree York pitch frog, but I don't have a middle pitch frog of 55 degrees to, uh, to directly compare against. Working with very hard Australian hardwoods that commonly have reversing difficult grain, do you believe that a standard pitch plane with a close set chip breaker and open mouth is more effective at controlling tear out while providing flexibility to back off the chip breaker and get a clearer finish on less tear out prone woods and with less compromise than a middle pitch 55 degree frog and a closed up mouth? Many sources indicate that a 60 degree blade angle is preferred on difficult Australian hardwoods and so 55 may be harder to push, but still lead to tear out. So a lot going on here. Um, smoothing planes. So I've used smoothing planes in, in wooden versions, in iron versions, with uh, bed angles as low as, um, you know, whatever the low angle smoothers are bedded at. Although, um, you know, the bevel up planes tend to still have approximately a 45 degree um, 45 degree edge uh, effective cutting angle when you combine the bevel angle. So I'm not sure that comparing those um, is really worth the effort, but um, it won't answer your question, I guess is what I'm getting at. But um, so I've used smoothing planes in, in wooden versions and iron versions with uh, bed angles as low as 40 degrees all the way up to 55 degree angle planes. I have also used planes with single irons as well as planes that have a, you know, an iron and a chip breaker. So um, I have you know, a little bit of experience. I'm not going to say I'm an expert in this area because I haven't worked with all the woods that you're talking about here, uh, specifically the really hard interlocked reversing grain Australian hardwoods. My experience is limited to North American hardwoods um, and the occasional piece of mahogany or uh, bubinga. Um, and I have worked with Purple Heart, uh, but I don't get into too many exotics. For the most part, I stick with North American hardwoods and mahogany. That's about the extent of uh, what I tend to like to work with. These days, my preferred plane or the plane, the, the smoothing plane that I use most often um, is a Lee Nielsen number four with a 50 degree frog. Um, and, and that seems to handle everything that I need uh, a smoothing plane to handle. Mouth opening, I'll talk about that first because in my experience, that has been the absolute least important thing for reducing tear out. Um, I guess it could potentially help if you have some really, really nasty woods. Um, but again, with the woods that I have worked with and, uh, and the experience that I have had with, you know, anything, like I said, from mahogany and sapili to, um, you know, North American hardwoods uh, like tiger maple, um, you know, some, some figured maples and, and figured cherries, um, mouth opening has been the least important of all, all of the factors in terms of the North American hardwoods. Um, and, and to some extent, the mahoganies that I've worked with as well, the, the, the chip breaker and the bed angle actually seem to come in, you know, they're about equal, I would say, in terms of um, their performance or, or their effectiveness at reducing 
tear out. My old 55 degree wooden smoother, single iron wooden smoother, did a was very effective at reducing tear out in most of the woods that I use, uh, from figured cherry to figured maple, uh, some figured mahogany. Uh, and that 55 degree single angle smooth single iron smoother um, handled all those woods very well. You know, if the blade was sharp, set light, um, it, you know, it, it did the job. And and it did not have a very tight mouth at all. I would say, um, especially what people consider tight mouths. You know, for a smoother, that 55 degree single iron wooden plane um, did not have a very tight mouth at all. Similarly. I have satis- uh, uh, successfully handled all those same woods with a 45 degree old, you know, old Stanley uh, with a stock iron and chip breaker, um, and they work just fine as well. So, um, my experience, at least with the woods that I've worked with, has led me to conclude that um, you know that the angle of attack and the closeness of the chip breaker are kind of two interchangeable things that can uh, help to reduce tear out. And they're probably the most effective um, mouth opening, really not playing that much of an important role. Now, with that said, as I mentioned earlier, I've never worked with uh, the Australian hardwoods that you're mentioning. Um, And I know there are a lot of planes, you know, specifically like the H&T Gordon planes in Australia that were designed specifically for working with those Australian hardwoods. And most of those planes are bedded at about 60 degrees. So, um, you know, Terry Gordon knows what he's doing in terms of making planes. And he, you know, he's an Australian that, uh, you know, knows how to handle those Australian timbers. So I would certainly trust uh, his experience and his judgment making those planes. But at the same time, there have been folks, um, Derek Cohen being one of them, who's, who's very active online on the, uh, on the woodworking message boards, who has used, um, you know, uh, bevel up, low angle, low bad angle planes uh, satisfactorily on uh, Australian timbers, as well as standard iron um, planes with, with close set chip breakers. So um, I think all of these things, you know, will will help in their own way. And, and they can, they're all tactics that can be used successfully to work with just about any timber. Uh, it really comes down to finding a method or a, a, something that works for you. Um, and then, you know, just working with it and getting things adjusted until you get the results that you're after. So, um, you know, I, I've seen studies on the, uh, you know, the use of the chip breaker. Uh, I have a friend back in, uh, Back, he's in, in Pennsylvania, but you know I used to volunteer with him at uh, Pennsbury Manor Museum, and uh, he's been using 45 degree wooden planes with close set chip breakers uh, for 50 years, and uh, that's all he uses. And he's never had any problems smoothing any wood that he's ever used just by using a, a close set chip breaker uh, on a double iron plane. So, and and we're talking wooden planes, you know, with practically wide open mouths here. So, um, you know, I think all of these things can be effective. Um, the single iron planes at multiple bed angles or pitches, um, you know, they were the 18th century version. They were the 18th century solution to, to tear out problems is to increase the, uh, angle, the bed angle of the iron. And in the late 18th century, the double iron was introduced 
and effectively eliminated the need for higher bed angles. And we don't see planes with higher bed angles than that 45 degrees in, in U.S. made planes and usually about 47 and a half in English made planes. Um, you know, after the beginning of the 19th century, they, the double iron pretty much replaced them. Why? Uh, some folks would argue because it was just simply a better design and more versatile design. Um, there are others who would argue against that, and, and they have their reasons. Uh, but my experience has been that both methods work, and both methods work well. Um, so I would experiment with those, and, and there's no reason. Like I said, you know, my favorite these days for smoothing is a uh, is a 50 degree frog with a, a double iron, and uh, I have yet to find anything that that plane can't handle. Um, again, have I have no experience with the Australian hardwoods, um, but you know. I would not worry so much about mouth opening, um, you know, but with a 50 degree uh, bed angle and a double iron with a cap iron set nice and close to the edge, I've pretty much been able to uh, handle everything that I've needed to. So our next question comes from Dave Chalice or, or Chalice. Uh, he says, what are the benefits of a haunched mortise and tenon? When would you use them over the non-haunched version? I can't seem to find any obvious pattern as to when they are or aren't used. So Dave, I, I think you can't seem to find a pattern because I don't think there really was one. Um, you know, I've seen a lot of, of drawings of period, you know, of uh, period furniture and, and pictures, photos of period furniture that's been taken apart. Um, and there wasn't necessarily any rhyme or reason to when a haunch tenon was used or not, um, except when we get into things like door frames, but I'll talk about those in a second. So let's first talk for folks who don't understand the term haunch or what haunch means. So a haunched mortise and tenon is essentially, if you think about a mortise and tenon joint, you have a, your, you cut your tenon, but the top or bottom or both part of the, the tenon um, has what in essence looks like a mini tenon on it. It's kind of a short version of that tenon. Sometimes it's an angled piece um, cut at 45 degrees, and sometimes it's just a shorter version of the tenon. Um, and that short version is called the haunch. And there were various situations where a haunched mortise and tenon might be used. For example, if you were building a table with a, a wide apron, you might use a haunched mortise and tenon because it effectively widens your tenon without weakening the mortise. So let's say you had a four inch wide apron. And uh, if you wanted to make a four inch wide tenon, you really couldn't do that. You would in essence be making a bridle joint. Nothing wrong with that, but it, it's certainly not as strong as a mortise and tenon joint in terms of the racking forces being applied to that joint. Now, if you put, uh, if you on that same four-inch wide apron, if you put a half-inch shoulder top and bottom, your tenon is now three inches wide instead of four inches wide. So the concern there, and whether or not there's any uh, real necessary need for this concern or not, is up for debate. But the concern is that with that half-inch of unsupported area on the apron stock at each end that half inch that's not buried within a mortise, um, the, you could get some cupping and the ends of your 
apron stock could sort of cup inward and your apron would no longer be flat. Um, whether or not, you know, there's, there's a lot of merit to that is again, as I said, up for debate. Um, and you'll get lots of opinions on that, but that's the, the concern. That's the general concern. The solution of course is to make your tenon wider so that the, you have more wood inside the mortise. But if you make that tenon wider, you're making your mortise wider as well. And now you've got less material to support that joint on at either end of the mortise. And the closer, you know, in, in the case of a table, you're getting closer and closer to the top of the leg. And obviously, if you go all the way to the edge of the apron, you're through the top of the leg. And again, we're back to that bridle joint again. So what do you do? Well, one solution is to haunch the tenon. What you can do is you cut your tenon, your mortise, at three inches. And you cut your main, the main part of your tenon at three inches. But for the two outside half-inch sections where you have a shoulder, you take that tenon and you cut it back at 45 degrees from the edge of the apron down uh, a half inch. So you have this angled portion where the tenon now that is four inches wide at the very shoulder of the, uh, of the apron, but it tapers down the tenon itself to three inches wide in the, after about a half of an inch. So you get now more of the tenon inside of the joint to provide that support against cupping. Um, and at the same time, you don't really um, weaken your mortise by cutting through the end. So that's one place where you might use uh, a haunch on your tenon. But as Dave mentioned, there's really no pattern to when you would do this and when you wouldn't. Um, some craftsmen did it and some didn't. And, you know, maybe they didn't even do it all the time when they did it. Uh, there's really no rhyme or reason. There's no rule as to when you would do it or not. It really just comes down to um, your thoughts and, and how you feel that apron is going to behave. And if you feel that it's wide enough that there's a chance of cupping, then maybe you want to put the haunches on. Um, if you feel that, you know, it's not really going to be an issue, well, then you can leave the haunches off and make your mortise and tenon joint a little faster because the, you know, the haunch joint does take a little bit more time to make. The one place where you would pretty much always find a haunched tenon would be in something like a cabinet door where you have a raised panel or a glass, um, a glass inset uh, into the door. In those situations, you would almost always find a haunched mortise and tenon. And the reason is simple. Using a haunch on the tenon allows you to make a through groove rather than a stopped groove. And period, woodworkers knew that it was much faster to make a through groove than a stop groove. In fact, uh, in period furniture, you very, very rarely, if ever, find a stopped groove because it just wasn't, uh, in most cases, it just wasn't necessary. There were other methods uh, of doing what you needed to do so that you could make a through groove with a plow plane and then fill part of that groove in if you didn't need it to go all the way through. In the case of a cabinet door with a raised panel, you would plow your groove on all of your stock all the way through. Um, and then in order to, you know, once you assembled that door frame, you would end up with a small section of the groove showing at the top 
of the door at the top and bottom of the door if you um, if you cut a normal tenon. But if you cut a haunched tenon, and in this case the haunch would be square, it wouldn't be uh, it wouldn't be angled like you would in a table apron. If you cut a haunched tenon, you would fill in that space, and you could do the same thing in a table apron uh, using a square haunch. Uh, but the the um, the haunch would essentially show on top of the table leg, and if you did, you know, so if you didn't want that, you could use the angled haunch. Um, but you know, in the case of a cabinet door, or uh, or again, you know, if you didn't care that the haunch was showing in the top of the uh, table leg, you would cut a square haunch, and that way, the haunch would fill in the groove at the top of the of the styles, top and bottom of the styles. So that when the door frame came together, everything was nice and smooth, and you didn't have these grooves sticking out uh, at the top and bottom of the door. And that allowed you to make through grooves uh, for your your raised panel for your door, um, and then assemble everything. And the haunch would fill in that groove, and uh, no one would be you know no one would know the difference, and it, everything would be good and strong. So that's the place when I cut haunch mortise and tenons. Ninety nine percent of the time, that's where I'm using them. Um, in table aprons, I almost never do it. Um, it's most cases I, I haven't found it really to be an issue or a need. Um, but where I am almost always using a haunch mortise and tenon is when I make um, rail and style doors or frames, um, so that the haunch of that tenon fills in the groove, and I can plow the groove straight through with my plow plane instead of having to make a stopped groove. So that's where I would use haunch mortise and tenon the majority of the time. So our last question is a voicemail from Jason's vocal. And Jason is having problems with his Stanley number no. 4 smoother. Hi, Bob. My name is Jason. I um, discovered your podcast uh, recently and, and up, to, up to episode 14. You know, I'm uh, really enjoying it. Became a patron. Um, but I do have a, uh, a, a question. I have a number no. 4 um stanley sweetheart uh plane that i i won on ebay and i absolutely love the feel of it got it all refurbished the, the blade is sharpened very well i uh i have the uh blade and, and, and uh oh it's at the chip breaker um sitting very nicely on the frog and, and you know the adjustments all all work um however it's barely taking a shaving and i believe it's because the, the throat just isn't big enough. There's no room for the shape to come up. Um, upon looking at my the breaker and blade, there's ooh, maybe a 32nd of an inch um, difference. I have it very, very tight um, on there, but I just, I, I just can't get it to take nice, um, nice shaving. They get a lot of dust. And like I say, I, I believe it's because there's just no room for that shaving to go. Um, wondering how does one open up the throat on a metal body plane? Um, I look forward to uh, an answer at some point, and um, you know, keep up with the uh, the show. I really enjoy it. Thank you. Bye bye. So Jason, thank you for uh, becoming a patron, and uh, yeah. It can be uh, it can be a bit of trouble to uh, to set up a plane if you don't have uh, too much experience doing so, especially an older plane. But 
Um, there's, there's a few things that I think could be going on here. Uh, first, you mentioned that your, your blade is sharp. And um, I, would, I would question that first. If you're just getting dust, um, the first thing I would question is your blade. Um, make sure you know, that it truly is razor sharp. Um, you should be able to get that blade so sharp that it can, it can shave the hairs. It can practically scare the hairs uh, off of your, your arm. So uh, if you can't shave with that blade, then it's not sharp enough. Um, so first, make sure that your blade is sharp. Always the first thing to check. Anytime you're having problems uh, with a plane, number one thing to check, make sure the blade is sharp. And again, I know you said it's sharp, uh, but you know some folks' definition of sharp is, is not necessarily the same um, as what you truly should be, uh, should be using. So uh, make sure that you can shave with that blade. If you can shave with it, then it's sharp enough. Um, the next thing I would check actually wouldn't be related to the plane. It would be related to the board. So if you're trying to take a really thin shaving with a plane, you need to make sure that the board that you're planing is flat enough because if the board itself isn't flat enough, all you're going to be doing is ticking the high spots, uh, especially if you're, you know, you've got a rough sawn board or, you know, a piece of, uh, two by four or something like that, you know, that's, that's not in great shape and you're trying to take a real thin shaving, um, it's going to be a while before you are able to take that real thin shaving because the board itself just isn't flat enough. And when you think about it, um, if the sole of your plane, you know, is flat to within a thousandth of an inch, um, over that nine inch span, then your board, and, and you're trying to take a, a shaving that's a thousandth of an inch. That means your blade is sticking down below the sole of the plane one thousandth of an inch. If your board is out of flat over that length of your plane, let's say you know your plane is nine inches long, um, over that, that section, that nine inch section of a board, if you have a dip or a, a bow in that board, that's two or three thousandths of an inch and you're trying to take a one thousandth of an inch shaving, you're never going to take that shaving. No matter how sharp your blade is, no matter how closely set the chip breaker is because the board itself is just not flat enough. So I would first recommend, you know, taking a deeper cut, make sure you can take a thick shaving before you try to take a thin shaving because in order to take a really, really thin shaving, you need to have a really, really flat board. Um, and I think some people miss that when they they first get their hands on a plane and they think, you know, you should be taking these gossamer thin shavings that, you know, practically float on uh, the lightest breeze. You can do that. But, you know, if, you, if you're going to do that, you need a board that's flat enough to be able to take those shavings. So, um, you know, that's a step in the process as well. Now, assuming your plane is shaving sharp and you can, you know, shave the hair off your arm with it um, and your board that you're working with is super flat, then we can go back to look at the plane itself. Um, it's possible that the mouth may be too tight. Um, a 32nd of an inch, believe it or not, is pretty wide. Um, you know, it's, it's, that's not really that tight. And, and if you're trying to take a really thin shaving, a really thin shaving should pass through uh, a 32nd of an inch, no problem. So, but, you know, certainly no problem in, in um, widening the mouth a little bit. 
Um, and in, in order to do that, it depends on the plane that you have. So I, I did a video, um, a YouTube video years ago on, uh, on actually adjusting the, uh, the mouth of an of a iron plane. And I'll post a link to that in the show notes. But um, the short version of it is you need to remove the blade from the plane, loosen up the two screws that hold the frog in place, and then you need to, uh, if, you're, if your plane has a frog adjusting screw, you want to turn the frog adjusting screw to move the frog further back in the plane. Um, if you don't, if your plane does not have a frog adjusting screw, uh, then you're just going to have to move that frog back a little bit with your fingers, tighten the frog, uh, the frog screws down to lock the frog in place again, and then put the blade back in and, and see what the mouth looks like. If you have a bedrock plane, which it sounded like you didn't, but um, if you do, you can actually make that adjustment without taking the blade out. You, again, have to loosen the two frog adjusting screws, which are located on the back of the frog in a bedrock style plane, um, and then turn that frog adjusting screw to move the frog back, and then tighten those two frog adjusting screws back down. Uh, sorry, touch tighten the two f screws that secure the frog um, back up and that will keep the frog from moving. So, uh, so that's how you would adjust the mouth opening on that iron plane. Um, but my, my guess is that's probably not it. It's either the, the sharpness of the blade, the flatness of the board, or it could possibly be the flatness of the plane sole itself. If, you're, if you've got a, a board that's fairly flat, um, and your iron is fairly sharp, but you can't get the plane to take a thin shaving, but you can get it to take a, th a thick shaving, then it's possible that you may need to flatten the sole of that plane. What I would suggest is to put the iron in, uh, in the plane and retract it all the way and put a good known straight edge on the sole of that plane. Um, you know, like the, the ruler section from a good combination square is usually pretty good. Um, put that on the sole of the plane and and give it a look and see how if the sole itself is out of flat. Um, and if it is severely out of flat, you know, for a smoother, you may want to go ahead and lap that sole and uh, and get it nice and flat. And that could help your problem as well. But again, I would check the sharpness of the blade and the flatness of the board first, because those are usually the culprits. Uh, when a plane's not taking a shaving, if you're trying to take a thin shaving, one of those two things is usually the culprit. Either the blade's not sharp enough or the board itself isn't flat enough. So that's all for questions for this week. As always, if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. Or you can leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123. Or you can go to brfinewoodworking.com slash contact and fill out the contact form. So today's main topic is on scratch stocks, and it was a, a suggestion sent in by Damien King. So let's hear what Damien has to say. Hey, Bob. Damien here from Hudson Valley, New York. I was thinking a lot about scratch stocks lately when I was making a picture frame for my son, and was hoping that maybe you would be willing to discuss scratch stocks, what they are, how they're used, um, I've had a few different kinds over the years. Um, my latest incarnation is the, a cast iron version that Lee Valley sells that I really like, fits to hand well, balanced well, seems really easy to use and comes with a variety of stock and blank blades. So 
if you might uh, lead a little discussion on that, I think that would be great for the community. So keep up the great work. Appreciate what you do, and uh, stay sharp. Thanks. So scratch stocks, great uh, great topic suggestion. Um, I, I love scratch stocks. You know, I, I've made a whole bunch um, before. I still have some of the ones I've made. Some of them have, have long since been uh, discarded. Um, but they're a great way to get into making moldings without the investment in molding planes. And, and if you've priced out, you know, new made, newly made hollows and rounds or, or complex molding planes or uh, even old ones, even antique ones, you could be you could really start to get into a lot of money when you want to start making moldings. And uh, it can be intimidating. But if you have a simple project and, and these days the beauty is the beauty of scratch socks is, you know, they make Scratch socks are, tend to be used more for simpler moldings. Um, you know, you're not typically going to make a, a giant um, cornice molding for a high boy using scratch stocks. Um, you could, but it would take you an awful long time to scratch that molding and scrape that molding down. But the the beauty th- about more contemporary furniture these days is that the ornamentation and the molding work tends to be much smaller and much simpler than what we've seen uh, in in period pieces, say, from um, from the 18th and, and early 19th centuries. So we're not using big, complex moldings uh, unless we're, you know, unless you're making 18th and, and early 19th century reproductions, you're not typically making really complex moldings. It's usually something that's fairly simple, maybe uh, a small bead or a... Um, you know, a small ovalo or a small OG or, or small bevel, um, you know, it's a pretty simple profile. And you can do that, those those simple small profiles, very easily with scratch stocks. So what is a, a scratch stock? Essentially, a scratch stock is nothing more than a shaped scraper. Uh, if you know what a card scraper is, then for the most part, you know what a scratch stock is. If you take a card scraper and you file a profile in it, whether it be a, a small bead or a small ovalo or OG, and you take that piece of cardstock and you put it in, you know, you saw a slot in a scrap piece of wood and you put that piece of, of card scraper with that profile into that piece of wood, you've essentially made a scratch stock. Um, and there are lots of articles and blog posts online about how to um, how to make scratch stocks. I've got one that I did several years ago for uh, a joint stool that I was making, and I'll post a link to that blog article as well. I'll show you how to, I made the uh, the scratch stock that I made for that particular project. Um, but they're very, very simple to make. For the most part, all you need is uh, a piece of scrap wood and some source for the steel. And I find that the best sources for steel are old card scrapers and old hand saws. And I happen to like fairly thick scrapers um, or handsaw blades for my scratch stock material. Um, thin scrapers and, and really thin handsaw blades tend to bend too much um, and it that kind of screws up the profile of the uh, of the, the molding. A good thick bodied handsaw or a good thick bodied card scraper tends 
to work much better. Uh, it holds its shape better. It doesn't bend as much and flex as much in use uh, and makes a much better scratch stock. So uh, when you're going to make your scratch stock, seek out the thickest scrapers and the thickest uh, saw blades that you can find to cut up and make your scratch stocks out of. And the process is quite simple. You're going to draw what is essentially the negative of the molding that you want to create on your steel. And then you're going to file that profile into the steel. Uh, and you can use, you know, the, the best thing that I've found is chainsaw files. Uh, they have a nice small radius. They work real well. And you can use a combination of chainsaw files for the round portions of the scratch stock of the, of the molding profile um, and triangular um, tapered saw files for the straight sections. Um, and I've had my best luck using those two types of files when filing the profiles for a scratch stock. Now, in terms of the body, you've got a couple of choices. Uh, the, the easiest is to take a scrap piece of wood, cut it into a kind of L shape. And again, I'll show you that. Uh, I'll link to my blog post because it shows this particular style of scratch stock. Um, but you essentially cut your scrap piece of wood into a kind of an L shape and you make a saw curve down its thickness that you can slide that scratch stock into. The wider section of the um, of the block of wood becomes the fence for the scratch stock. And then the thinner section of the L becomes the part that's going to actually pinch and hold the steel blade in place. And you slide that steel blade in the saw kerf and you put a wood screw in there to pinch everything nice and tight and hold your steel scratch stock blade in place. Um, and then you can, you can scratch that molding into a piece of wood or essentially scrape that molding uh, into your table apron or whatever it is that you need to make a molding in. The second way that you can make a wooden bodied scratch stock is essentially using an old wooden marking gauge or making what is essentially a wooden marking gauge. You've got a movable fence with that marking gauge and then the beam or arm of that marking gauge by cutting a kerf, sawing a kerf down the center of that beam, you can slide your scratch stock blade in there. Again, put a small wood screw in next to the blade to hold everything in place exactly where you want it. And then you can adjust the fence to position that molding exactly where you want. And that's a great way to make a scratch stock if you need to make a molding in the center of a board where you're not scratching right along the edge. Um, it's a little bit more involved, but again, it's essentially a marking gauge with a scratching blade in the beam instead of a marking pin. Um, and it's a fantastic way, an easy, cheap, simple way uh, to make a scratch stock. And, and that particular one would be easy to swap blades in and out of so that you can use the same body and a bunch of different blade profiles uh, so you wouldn't have to make a separate body for each each blade. Now, if you want to go the uh, fancy lad approach, there are commercial options. You can go with um, something like an, an antique Stanley number 66. They called it a beater, the Stanley number 66 beater. Essentially, it's an iron bodied scratch stock. It came with a bunch of different interchangeable blades with a, a fence that goes onto the bottom of the stock and uh, it's a scratch stock. It's a, it's a metal bodied scratch stock. It looks like an oversized spoke shave, but it has small scratch stock scraper blades 
that interchange in and out of the body with a fence that goes on the bottom. Um, and essentially it's a, a an oversized iron scratch stock. Uh, Lee Nielsen actually makes a contemporary version of it. It's a, it's a copy of the Stanley number 66. Uh, it goes for quite a pretty penny for, you know, for what it is. Um, but if you know, that floats your boat, that's certainly another option that you could go. And it's a, it's a tool that works beautifully for what it's designed for. But my, by far, my favorite these days is actually the one uh, that Damien mentioned, or, or I think it's the one that Damien mentioned in uh, in his voicemail. Uh, Lee Valley Veritas actually sells two different versions of scratch stocks. They sell a wooden version, which is very similar to a marking gauge version like uh, I mentioned earlier, except it has sort of an extended handle on it. Um, and that's a, a tool that works very well. But they also sell one that is, it's actually a reproduction of uh, an antique version. And uh, I don't know who made the antique version, the Lee Valley website might say. But it's a small cast iron um, shape, uh, scratch stock body. It has these two little wings on it so that it makes it easy to hold. And it has a fence that screws onto the bottom on either side so that you can use the, uh, the scratch stock either on the left side or the right side of the stock. And... Uh, it comes with a, a selection of of blades that you can of blade of, of blades and blade blanks. So they have some standard profiles as well as some blanks that you can use to make your own profiles. And the blade blanks clamp into the body, the cast iron body. The cast iron body actually is um, somewhat rounded on the bottom. It's got a small radius, so it allows you to tilt the scratch stock slightly in either direction. What's help which helps with the action of the cut uh, over a flat body. And uh, it's very inexpensive. I, I want to say, you know, it was somewhere in the neighborhood of $35 for the, the tool with a couple of, of blades and blanks. Um, and it, it works exceptionally well. And just like with the homemade version, uh, you can make your own blades for uh, the Lee Nielsen or the Stanley uh, or the uh, Lee Valley Veritas versions as well. Um, and the profiles are practically limitless. You know, obviously, as I said earlier, you're not going to create giant cornice moldings and things like that with a scratch stock. Um, but for most of the small furniture size moldings, especially on the, you know, the, the more streamlined, clean pieces that uh, are much less ornamented, um, today that the designs don't seem to have lots of fancy moldings, um, scratch stocks can pretty much create all the moldings that you would need, um, you know, without any, without a set of, uh, of specialized planes to do the job. So what I'll do is I'll actually post in the show notes, I'll post a link to the blog post that I did on making a scratch stock so you can see how to make one for yourself. And I'll also post links to the Lee Nielsen and Lee Valley versions that I mentioned uh, in case you're interested in checking those out. But I do highly recommend, uh, if you're, especially if you're on a budget, um, you need to make some, some simple basic profiles. Look into scratch stocks. Get yourself an old handsaw or an old card scraper or what have you. And uh, a couple of chainsaw files and a couple of small triangular saw sharpening files. And uh, you can make yourself... Uh, just about any little small basic molding profile that you want 
and uh, as long as the wood itself is uh, is scrapable, you can really do uh, a decent job of making some some nice moldings. And uh, I'll talk about the wood just briefly. And what I found is that if a wood tends to scrape well, uh, it will tend to re- to uh, react to the scratch stock well. So harder woods like cherry and maple and oak, um, walnut, they all seem to take to the scratch stock very nicely. Um, softer woods, poplar does okay. Uh, you just want to make sure that you keep the, the faces of that scratch stock honed real nicely. Um, it doesn't do too bad. When you start to get into woods like pine and, and the real the soft woods, um, they tend to get a little fuzzy when you're making trying to make moldings with a scratch stock in those uh, those woods. You can certainly do it, but you might have to sand that molding just a little bit. Um, but if you stick to most of the harder um, harder woods uh, like walnut and cherry and maple, um, you should be just fine. And the scratch stock is going to do a fine job, and you probably won't even need to sand it at all. It'll probably be ready for finish right off the scratch stock. So give them a try. I think you'll uh, you'll enjoy them. So that's going to do it for this week's show. As always, I want to thank you all for joining me and for allowing me to do this, because without your support, none of this would be possible. As a reminder, please send in your feedback, questions, and topic suggestions, because this show depends upon your input and participation for its content. Just leave uh, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bobbrfinewoodworking.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123, or you can use the contact form on the website at brfinewoodworking.com contact. If you're looking for the show notes for today's episode, you can find them on my website at brfinewoodworking.com htt030. In the show notes, you'll find the links that I referred to in today's show, and you can find links to follow me in all of my social media accounts. Finally, if you'd like to support the show, you can become a supporter on Patreon, or you can make a one-time donation through PayPal. And you'll find links to do so in the show notes and at brfinewoodworking.com support. So thank you again for listening. And until next time, stay sharp, everybody.